We've been doing a series in 1 Corinthians 10. You probably noticed we haven't been doing every single verse. We're taking more of a broad sweep through the book. Um, my husband reminded me of a time in his oh, another church he was in where they, d- they did go at it every verse. In Romans, they started a series in Romans. Friends of his went away to India for five years. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> when they came back, they were still doing Romans. <laughs> So you might be glad we're taking more of a broad sweep than that. Okay. So on with the glasses. Here we go. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wanted to remind the church in Corinth of the Israelites in the desert. And he was drawing some comparisons between where the church in Corinth was going wrong and where the Israelites went wrong out in the desert. Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. They went through the waters in a baptism like ours as Moses led them from enslaving death to salvation life. They all ate and drank identical food and drink, meals provided daily by God. They drank from the rock, God's fountain for them that stayed with them wherever they were. And the rock was Christ. But just experiencing God's wonder and grace didn't seem to mean much. Most of them were defeated by temptation during the hard times in the desert. And God was not pleased. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 10. It's entitled, Warnings from Israel's Past. It's all about a warning. The Israelites, they'd been taken from the slavery of the Egyptians where life was awful. They'd been oppressed. They were out in the desert, but God was feeding them every day miraculously with food coming from heaven. Whenever Moses struck the rock, there was water poured out for them to drink. God led them in a miraculous way by a cloud and showed them every step of the way to go. They were really privileged people. God was looking after them. They were God's chosen people. Were they happy? (laughs) Nope. They grumbled, they gave up on God, they made an idol out of gold, which we read about in Exodus 16. They started committing sexual sin, they had crazy parties out in the desert. And we're going to read about that in the next passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So he compares Corinth to the Israelites in the desert. In Corinth, the church was privileged as well. They were an affluent church. They'd been well-educated. They understood that they'd been set free from slavery, the slavery of sin and death through Jesus. God provided their food. He provided the bread and the wine so that they could share a meal together. And they sat down and shared it to remember Jesus' death. And God was guiding them. Not with a cloud anymore, but with a personal 
relationship with God. Problem was, they'd become pretty confident about their spirituality. And we know that some members of the church were taking advantage of their new spiritual freedom. Paul and Ali have talked about that. So now they were getting drunk. They were getting drunk at communion, as we read in chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. They were committing sexual immorality. Prostitution was acceptable in Corinth. And they were starting to mix pagan beliefs with biblical beliefs and justify that it was okay for them to do the same. The community in Corinth was surrounded by idols and temples. There were temples to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, Hermes, the god of trade. And it seems as if individual members had been getting involved in idol worship. And like the Israelites, they grumbled as well. So what was the result for both sets of peoples? Well, for the Israelites, they didn't get to go to the promised land anytime soon. Many of them never did, and it took them 40 years going through the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever read this story and thought, why were the Israelites so stupid to build a golden idol when God was with them every step of the way? We wouldn't be that stupid, would we? They'd all been miraculously provided for. God was with them in person. Life was so much better than under the Egyptians. And had they forgotten about the Red Sea and all that God did there? We wouldn't do stuff like that if we were in their position, would we? We wouldn't get involved in sexual immorality. We wouldn't grumble. We're much more clued up spiritually than to do stuff like that. And the Corinthians thought that too. They thought they were very spiritual. They understood all about this new freedom that God had given them. God had brought, but most of us are pretty privileged as well. If we look around our church, most of us are well-fed, well-dressed. We've been brought up in church, taught spiritual truths for years and years. God's brought us from slavery to freedom. The slavery of sin and death and he's brought us into freedom he walks with us every step of the way we sit down and share the bread and wine together we have lots of food to eat most of us have far too much to eat let's be honest we're in a very similar position to both churches to both groups of people so what might the pitfalls be for us William Barclay said that what we give our time, thought and energy to, that's what becomes our idol. What we give our time, thought and energy to, that's our idol. Another way of thinking of it is to ask yourself, what do I maybe elevate above God? What's more important to me than God? What do I not give over to God for him to have complete control of? What's my overriding desire in life? Ultimately, the Israelites and the Corinthians were just really living for themselves sometimes and doing whatever they wanted to. But God teaches us a different way. Okay, there we go. He teaches us to put God at the top and let the other stuff come underneath. 
I asked my family, what do you think are the three main idols of modern society? And they all said two of the same things. They all said money. They all said self-image or loving yourself. And then each, each had a different third one. Technology, phones, having a good time and success. And we're all tempted to put that stuff above God. Because that's the norm, isn't it, in our society? That's what everybody else does. You know, we're encouraged um, to put that stuff above God. We're, we're encouraged to put our careers as our top priority. When I listen to the careers uh, advice at school, you know, when I, where I teach, careers are given a very high priority. And they are important, but they're not supposed to be above God. We're encouraged by advertising and the stuff we hear on the radio that we should gather up as much money as we possibly can and make ourselves as secure as we possibly can. It's very invasive, that thinking. It becomes normal in our head. But Jesus said, it's a fool who stores up things for himself and is not, um, is not rich towards God. It's a fool who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. It's not wrong to have money but it's wrong not to be rich towards God with it. It's very counterculture, isn't it? It's not what we're taught to do. It's not what we hear every day. Like the Corinthians, we are taught to live differently. And it's a really big challenge. It's a huge challenge to me. Our culture normalizes pornography. It's freely available, and though you may not be aware... It is the norm to use it. This is sexual immorality that's become the norm in our society. We've got to remain pure sexually and be different. Exodus shows us, after all, what happens when we follow idols. The people became degraded. They were having crazy parties. Their lives were not reflecting God at all. Our culture makes idols of youth and beauty and encourages us to spend hundreds of pounds on the way we look because we're worth it. That's what it says. We're worth it, and so it's okay. And we make a lot of stuff in our society with our hands, don't we? Some of it's made out of gold. Some of it's made out of steel and rubber. Some of it's made out of silicon and plastic. And then sometimes we worship those things because... We give more of our time and our love to those things than we give to God. It's different for all of us. The challenge is different for all of us. What is our idol? But take a minute and think, is there something I put above God? Is there something I give more of my love to, my time to? Is there something that's an overriding priority in my life above God? Actually, when you think about that gold idol, it was completely useless, wasn't it? It didn't do anything for the people in Israel. These things don't really give us what we need at all. They can't answer our deepest needs. When the Israelites disobeyed again later in the story in Deuteronomy 2, God had them wander around and around until eventually he had pity on them and he let them move on. 
He said, you've been wandering around in the hill country for long enough. Do you ever feel as if you're wandering around and around and you don't have a clear direction in your life? Does life ever feel unbalanced? There's a reason the Egyptians didn't build their pyramids that way. The first pyramid was a better plan, wasn't it? Because God at the top of our lives brings stability into our lives. And God at the top of our lives brings direction that none of the other stuff can actually give us. So what's the alternative? The first part of the chapter is a warning not to worship idols. But the sec in the second part, Paul gives us guidelines for true freedom instead of harmful freedom. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So, much of Corinthians so far has dealt with stuff about eating and drinking. Yes, we've, we've talked a lot about that. Here Paul says, let God and other people decide who you eat with, what you eat, why you eat, where you eat. God and other people, not ourselves. In the Old Testament and in Corinth, people had to bring living animal sacrifices to God as part of their worship. But in the New Testament, Paul says, you don't need to do that anymore. Just bring yourself. Bring yourself. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. So no more of the animal sacrifices, not idolatry. Bring yourself as a living sacrifice. What does that look like? Well, the best example of all was definitely Jesus. What did he have to say about eating and drinking? In Matthew 25, 35, he compares giving to the needy, living our lives with the needy to, to giving to him. Let's read Matthew 25, 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. For I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. Whatever you did for one of the least, you did it for me. I always think that last line's just amazing. What you do for the least in society, do it for Jesus. It's like doing it, giving something to Jesus. Of course, Jesus spent his whole life amongst the least, the poor, the people who felt rejected, like lepers, the outcasts, like the tax collectors, those who other people called sinners, because they didn't live according to the conventions of polite society. Since we're called to follow Jesus, I'm guessing 
that we should be doing that too. That we should be amongst the poor, those who feel rejected, those who feel themselves to be outsiders, those who don't follow our social conventions. I'm going to stop here and just introduce you to a couple of people who taught me a lot about that kind of lifestyle. It's my mum and dad. <laughs> um, I don't want you to think they were perfect at the end of this. <laughs> they really weren't perfect. <laughs> they weren't saints, Callum and Heather, and we'll tell you that. Um, but they did teach me a lot about this stuff. Um, they started off their life in the Gorbals, which is the poorest part of Glasgow. And uh, my dad lost his dad at six. His mum had to take on three jobs because there were no benefits then. He played football in his bare feet because there wasn't enough money for shoes. Despite all that and the fact that he left school with no qualifications whatsoever, <laughs> and despite all that, he became a professional footballer and a successful businessman in the end. Both my mum and dad died in the summer past. My dad died the day before my mum's funeral. They were very close. When I was five, the mother of the family next door was blown up in a gas explosion in the Clarkston gas disaster. And she couldn't look after her children, neither could her husband. She was in intensive care. And for months, they couldn't look after their children. So mum and dad did it. They had their children, Heather and Fiona, to come and live with us for months. And we're still close friends to this day. When I was about 10, I remember my dad visiting a man in prison who had known about church and God, but he got into a lot of trouble. He was an alcoholic, and he ended up in Berliny Jail in Glasgow. When he came out of jail, mum and dad had him round for dinner, I was completely terrified of him. I, would, I, was, I remember being in the living room with, my, with him on my own and being terrified, but nevertheless. When I was a teenager, there was a young woman in the church and her, she was about to get married, but the marriage was broken off just before the wedding. She was devastated. Mum and Dad had her round for dinner every Thursday because she was suffering from loneliness. When I was at university, I came home on my holidays. My parents had got to know a man from Niger. They were in Edinburgh by then. He was far from his family, far from his children and studying. And they had him round for Christmas dinner, for Christmas day. They sent him home with a sack full of jumpers, blankets, shoes. He had come to Edinburgh from Africa and he had no jumpers and no coats and he was freezing. <laughs> when mum and dad were old, my mum had dementia. My dad was awaiting a heart bypass operation and they could no longer practice their gift of hospitality, which they'd done pretty much on a weekly basis all their married lives. So not to be defeated, they sat down and wrote a list of all the people who were worse off than them who were having a worse time. And they wrote their list 
and then they proceeded to have all those people around for coffee, subsequently to their little bungalow. When mum and dad died, I went to my dad's funeral and spoke to my dad's cousin. And she told me how grateful she was to them because she'd, they'd paid her way through university. She had lost her mum and dad as a teenager and had no support at all. So they quietly pastored the thousands of pounds she needed to do university and still eat and still drink. And the thing was, I'd never heard about it. I had no idea. I think what I realised as I got older was that mum and dad treated everybody the same. It was regardless to their social standing, their age, their clothes, their job. And I started as I got into my teen years to realise that that wasn't what everyone else was doing. Because most people treated people differently according to their social standing. I guess my dad was born really poor and he became well off. But he would have remembered what it felt like to be poor and to be looked down on. I guess Jesus knew about that too. He was born poor. He knew what it felt like to be poor and not to have very much and he treated everybody with the same respect even though he was God, which is amazing, isn't it? So mum and dad made it their business to spend time who, with people who were alone, who were rejected, who were, who were lonely. So to reiterate, before Jesus, people had to bring animal sacrifices to God as part of their worship. After Jesus, God called us to bring our lives to him instead. Our lives. And to worship God with our lives. And the same verse we read, read earlier, but in the message, says it the best for me. So here's what I want you to do. Oops. Take your everyday, sorry. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Perhaps this could be summed up best in the word hospitality. And I wonder what comes to your mind when the word hospitality is said. Perhaps it looks like this. I always remember David and Lop talking about the difference between, what was the word he used? Hospitality and entertaining. He said, entertaining is when you have your house all cleared up, nice and tidy, you get the table perfect, you, you invite your best friends, you give them your best food, and then you hope that they invite you back. <laughs> my kids will tell you what it's like before I, I can see you smile and come, <laughs> because before anyone comes to my house, that's what I'm doing, tidying, rushing around. But maybe hospitality is when our house looks more like that, but somebody needs a cup of coffee. Or somebody needs a chat and you just say, come on in, just come round. 
Because love can be a bit disruptive to our plans, can't it? It can interrupt our daily plan. To give an example of that, there was a woman in my church in Edinburgh, and she lived alone. She could have felt sorry for herself, but I loved what she did. She made two dinners every Sunday. Our church in Edinburgh was a big city church. Many strangers came in every Sunday. Many people from abroad came in every Sunday. Tourists came in every Sunday. And every Sunday she just found somebody who was on their own and she just took them back for dinner. She, but she planned it. She planned to have her Sunday disrupted, as it were. I wonder who might need our hospitality the most. Recent research on loneliness shows that the following groups suffer the most from loneliness. Just have a look. In a different church I went to, not this church, I had a couple of ladies I knew who were single. And I uh, just invited them back for dinner one day. And one of them sat down and just looked at me and said, this is amazing. I thought, what do you mean it's amazing? She said, nobody in the church has ever invited us back for dinner before. And I was really quite aghast at that. I thought, why? Maybe we like our dinner parties or whatever we do to be all equal numbers, but maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Perhaps we could mess things up a bit, (laughs) get a bit disrupted and just invite people of all sorts to our homes. Add an extra setting on Sunday lunch. You'll hardly notice the difference, but the other person will. Maybe mix up the routine, and instead of just having family every week, maybe some weeks don't do family and do something different. So let's just think, finally, moving towards the end. Is there a family near you who, for one reason or another, needs your help because they're struggling. What could you do? Is there somebody like George, who's on the outside of society, or like my friends, who are on the outside of church, and you could bring them into the inside of your home? Do you know somebody who's lonely? You do, (laughs) because 25% of the UK adult population is lonely all the time or most of the time. So you will know someone who's lonely. Just look out for them. Do you know somebody from abroad or even outside of Northern Ireland? Because Northern Ireland's a very family society. Most people have a lot of extended family here. And if you don't, it's very noticeable and you feel it. So look out for the people who don't have that. And of course, this goes for both non-Christians and Christians. Let's face it, one very powerful way to share your faith is to share your life with somebody, to share your home, to share your food, your kitchen, your drink. Because if people don't feel that we love them, they will not believe in the God we says loves them. If we, if people don't feel that we love them, they won't believe 
that our God loves them. So let's be generous with our lives, with our money, with our time. It really is my genuine belief that when we give God our money, our time, our lives, when we live God's way, it's really true that God came to give us life, or Jesus came to give us life, life in all its fullness. I really believe that. I believe that life with all the other stuff at the top isn't life in all its fullness. I believe it's not balanced. It's not directioned. It's, it all feels wrong. And that life in all its fullness is sharing and giving our lives to God and with other people. It's been a pleasure for many of the people in this congregation to work with CAP Life Skills, to work in the Alpha Group, which has grown from that. It's been a real pleasure because we've had the joy of seeing people's lives improved, being brought into community. We went away for the weekend last weekend and a lady said to me, before I knew you lot, I had nobody. Nobody. That means that lady was on her own in her flat every day. And she didn't smile when she came in the first day. In fact, she cried her eyes out. And I've never seen anybody look as unhappy in my whole life. But I see her smile now. And she actually feels like she belongs to a community. She came here last week. It is a joy. And that's what God... God wants us to have life in all its fullness. He doesn't want us to be living a life that's unbalanced. So let's avoid, if we can, putting the idols at the top and let's, if we can, live the life of freedom that Jesus has in store for us. Thank you.